From the FJC in Washington, D.C., I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Evidence-based practice in probation and pretrial services mandates that practitioners use the best available research findings to carry out their duties as investigators and supervise their justice-involved clients. While criminologists have conducted research for years that has been crucial to formulating national probation and pretrial services policy, it's only recently that practitioners have used that kind of research locally to improve client outcomes. And with over 100 federal probation and pretrial services offices across the country serving many different kinds of communities, national-level research can be of limited help to officers at the district level. For that reason, a group of chiefs, led by Dr. Michael Elbert in the Southern District of Iowa, formed the Chiefs Research Group in 2015. Its purpose is to engage in, quote, empirical examination of district-level data to generate the best available evidence to inform local policies impacting public safety and recidivism. This grassroots group has grown rapidly in just three years. Its most recent meeting attracted more than 30 people from both the probation and pretrial system and the academic research community to discuss district-based projects on topics as diverse as sex offender supervision, problem-solving courts, officer resilience, and more. Chief Michael Elbert joins me today to talk about the evolving role of empirical research in federal probation and pretrial practice. He has been Chief Probation and Pretrial Services Officer in the Southern District of Iowa since 2006. We're also joined by Catherine Taja, Assistant Deputy Chief U.S. Probation Officer in the Southern District of Iowa, and by Dr. Matthew DeLisi, Professor of Sociology and Coordinator of Criminal Justice Studies at Iowa State University. Assistant Deputy Chief Taja oversees the district's pre-sentence unit. Dr. DeLisi works closely with Chief Elbert, Assistant Deputy Chief Taja, and other members of the Iowa Southern Probation and Pretrial Executive Team in pursuing research designed to improve policy, practice, and client outcomes in the district. So folks, it's time to let your geek flag fly. We're talking about the translation of research to practice in this episode of Off Paper, and you're not going to want to miss it. Mike Elbert, Katie Taja, and Matt DeLisi, welcome to Off Paper. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I want to begin by asking you, Mike, to take us back a few years to around 2015 or maybe even a bit before then and describe what you were observing about federal probation and pretrial practice both nationally and in the Southern District of Iowa that indicated to you that districts like yours needed to do empirical research work on their own to supplement the criminal justice research being conducted by the judiciary at the national level and in the academic research community. And obviously, could you describe what you did about it in your district? Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Mark. I'll take you back to 1994 when I was appointed to USPO. <laughs> That's what it all When you were started. a mere uh, child. Yes, yes, sir. 24 years old. In 1996, we published a paper here in Southern Iowa on drug test manipulation. And that was our first foray into evidence-based practices. And by doing that, we were able to redefine our policies and procedures to defeat uh, urine test manipulation that was very widespread. Uh, in 1998, I started my Ph.D. program at the University of Nebraska at Omaha and really started to discover the empirical linkage through theory, research, and policy. Uh, in commuting to Omaha, Nebraska for six and a half years, 134 miles one way, I had a lot of time to think and contemplate how the system could use evidence to guide our practices. In 2004, my dissertation focused on 177 federal offenders in our district 
uh, looking at revocation, uh, compared that group to 100 uh, federal offenders who successfully completed supervision and found that unemployment, uh, drug use, uh, being a male offender, being someone who had an intermediate sanction imposed, and someone who had been revoked before on state uh, supervision was about 98% likely to be revoked in the Southern District of Iowa. And using those variables for females, we found that a uh, female offender with those variables was about 94% likely to be revoked. Uh, in December 2006, I was appointed Chief USPO in the district. Uh, in 2008, we published a, uh, a study on federal offenders and early termination. And this really kind of helped us turn the corner into the evidence-based practices uh, world. We looked at offenders who'd been early terminated, and then we looked at NCIC data three years after they had been uh, returned to the streets with no further supervision. So for the early termination group, we found that only eight of 108 had been uh, rearrested during that time. So we, we determined we were making very good decisions on who to early terminate. The full-term people who had to do their full term of supervision were found to be arrested, rearrested 35% of the time. And then the people that we revoked, we were all obviously making good decisions in that regard as well. 72% of that sample were rearrested after three years. The AO ended up doing a, a replication. The AO PPSO did uh, two replications of that study and essentially found the same thing. We were able to reassure our judges, our U.S. attorneys, and our court community locally that we were making good decisions. So that was an excellent, uh, excellent foray into evidence-based practices. During that time, when I wrote that article in the pers uh, Probation Perspectives Journal, the uh, the recommendation I had uh, going forward, and I'll just quote it from the article, uh, was to hire regional researchers, and that's kind of where the idea came, kind of foreshadowing ahead to Dr. Delizzi and, and hiring him. But the idea was to hire four to five researchers per uh, circuit and to have them look at local data to inform you know, our policies and procedures and to really look at federal populations, which, which was the key. At the time, when I was in my, my Ph.D. program and, and kind of nationally, we were, we were relying on meta-analyses from state studies. Uh, and there are some fundamental differences with our populations. Our populations are usually older uh, is, is one key uh, difference. Uh, but we just determined that you know, we need to look at, at federal data. So about 2007, 2008, I was appointed to the National Evidence-Based Practices Working Group, which was a great experience. It was uh, uh, run by the AOPPSO once again, and I was, I was very proud to be a part of that. A lot of discussions about how we can improve our system. In 2010, we looked at low-risk sentencing for the first time, helping author a, a letter to the United States Sentencing Commission on empirical sentencing, the fact that 80% of our population were low-risk, yet uh, as of today I just received the U.S. Sentencing Commission's uh, statistical uh, guide only 7% of our, of our entire population in the country receive a straight uh, sentence of probation. From 2013 to 2014, Assistant Deputy Chief Al Drury in our district was finishing up his Ph.D. in sociology at ISU, and Dr. Matt Delisi happened to be his chair. The more Al and I talked about uh, doing some local research, the more we thought, you know, Dr. Delisi, a renowned criminologist, is just basically 20 minutes away 20 minutes to the north of our office, we should, we should sit down with him uh, and start to talk about uh, conducting research locally. In 2014, uh, we did indeed sit down with Dr. DeLisi. Uh, we uh, Al went ahead and put together an expert services contract with the AO's help, 
And since that time, I guess the rest is history. We've done studies on sex offenders, violent offenders, low-risk offenders, uh, a psychopathy study. So a lot of really interesting studies that have helped inform our policies and procedures. It's a really outstanding uh, description of sort of the road you've taken, Mike, starting back from when you were an officer up through your tenure now as chief in terms of the evolution of the use of empirical research in your district and at the district level. What I find fascinating about it is how it really preceded the national move, at least in the federal system, toward uh, toward evidence-based practice and sort of that's now the nationally accepted standard. Um, and and you really sort of helped set that standard, I think, at the, at the local level, along with several other districts. But clearly, uh, I think the Southern District of Iowa was in the lead as the national system or as the system generally grew toward taking an evidence-based approach. Yes. So go ahead, please. No, thank you. I agree. And I think at the time in my PhD program, it was an exciting time for me because we were hearing about meta-analyses and what was working. And, and uh Bonson Andrews, risk need responsivity, um, you know, the AO, you know, basically adopting that approach was a, was a really, um, was just was excellent uh, development for our system. So, uh, Dr. DeLisi, you're a professor at Iowa State. You're uh, one of the most prolific and highly cited criminologists in the world with over 350 scholarly uh, criminal justice publications. And among many other things, you're the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Criminal Justice. And I also suspect you've got a few courses to teach. So I'm wondering, with all those demands on your time already, what was so compelling to you about working with the Southern District of Iowa that you just couldn't say no? Well, the, as Mike it, it suggested, I got an email from Alan Drury, who's a former student of mine who I knew was a federal probation officer, uh, about this opportunity. And to me, it was just tremendous. I previously had worked in the courts at the state level as a pretrial services officer and used to interview arrestees. And I've added some other experiences where I've always kind of enjoyed having a combined kind of scholar and practitioner orientation. I thought the best way to do criminology, criminal justice is from both a theory and research perspective and also an applied practitioner perspective. Together, you get the best sort of understanding of things. And so when I met with Mike and Alan, uh, to me, it was just sort of a no-brainer. It would give me kind of a connection to the system that I had previously had that I really enjoyed. It would give me access to data that are really rare for criminologists to be able to obtain. Uh, usually, criminal justice research is, is using local and state-level data and federal data, you know, especially sort of at the individual level, uh, is just very, very hard to come by. So for me, it just was a, a natural extension. And once I went down to Des Moines and started working with, you know, Mike and Katie and Alan and all the other staff, it was just a lot of fun. There, was, I think there was kind of a natural rapport, and it's just been a very important part of my kind of professional research. And so I just sort of wait and see what project they want to do. And the first one that we did was on, on sex offenders. We sort of targeted the, the most severe group, the group that has the most important implications for public safety. And then from there, we've, we've developed a number of other projects on another uh, of other sort of subpopulations within uh, the federal supervised release population. So it was something that was very easy for me to do to carve out time to participate in. Well, that makes a lot of sense, especially in light of your sort of your previous life as a practitioner. I think that that is uh, in some 
to some degree uh, unique among somebody of your stature as a, an academician. It makes a lot of sense now to me that you would uh, you would be willing and and excited about carving out you know the time to to work with uh, the Southern District or with practitioners in order to to sort of explore you know how empirical research at the district level can sort of inform practice. Yes, and I had a sense that the data would be very rich, but after starting to work there, I really had no idea to the degree to which these data were really expansive. And so they have at their fingertips all kinds of information, but a lot of the data is sort of beyond the day-to-day operations of what a probation officer would necessarily use or need. And so that was kind of one of my jobs was to delve into a lot of the other data files that they had on these offenders and access or sort of touch base on certain constructs um, that are very importantly related to behavior that are often either overlooked by criminologists because they don't have measures of them or they're not really even considered by practitioners because you don't necessarily need them to do your day-to-day work. And so it was really a, a gold mine of data once I started getting into it. And I've, I've talked with some other colleagues around the country uh, they're really quite envious of the data access in terms of the richness of their entire pre-sentence reports, their Bureau of Prisons information, their effectively their entire life history, their psychiatric and psychological reports. So it's really been great to create data sets where you can look at a lot of different constructs and see how they're associated with their performance on pre-trial or, excuse me, supervised release. Fascinating. And you know, Katie Taja, I, I want to bring you into the discussion here. And just hearing Mike and, and Matt uh, describe sort of the evolution of this work in the district can uh, really begin to see sort of the win-win nature of it. So you oversee pre-sentence work in the district. And a little bit later, I want to ask you more specifically about the impact uh, of the research work on pre-sentence investigation work that you all are doing. But for now, I'm really curious about your perspective as a member of the probation and pretrial department's executive team. You know, you've seen the research work evolve over time in the district. What did you think about this endeavor when it began? Was there scuttlebutt about it in the district? What was that like? You know, how is the executive team, the larger management team, how, how, how has the staff, how have you all adapted? Thank you, Mark. I'm, I think that the staff and our management team particularly have, from the very beginning, been very excited to work with Dr. DeLisi and to further make our organization a truly evidence-based environment. And I think that the excitement is twofold. One, from a management perspective, we are truly able to make informed decisions based on the information that Dr. DeLisi is able to give us about our unique population here in Southern Iowa and use that information to inform our policies and procedures. But from the officer's perspective, I think it's also great because we get a lot greater buy-in from our staff here in Southern Iowa because the policies and procedures that we're putting in place is based on real data that we've been able to collect on our defendants and offenders in our district. Um, And I can use one great example is um, Dr. DeLisi had indicated one of the very first studies we undertook was our sex offender studies. And there was a lot of um, anecdotal information or feelings regarding child pornography defendants versus um, more hands-on defendants and the impact or the basically unreported 
incidences of hands-on victimization by these um, child pornographers, but being able to, to get this information and share it, most importantly, with our court and to provide them this information so they have it when they have defendants in, in their courtroom and facing sentencing or supervised release hearings and to be able to also use that information. But then for the officers that are out in the field, to be able to provide this in, this information so that they can know what to look for and really target their supervision strategies based on the information that we have about these populations. Well, that's, uh, that's really helpful because obviously we want to really get down to sort of how does this kind of uh, research inform uh, officer practice? And so you've, you've described that very well, I think. And particularly, uh, I know that you all have delved deeply into the area of sex offender supervision and have done quite a lot of research. And it's really told you, you and your staff quite a lot in terms of how you all need to modulate the approach to supervision, which I can only imagine is extraordinarily helpful to officers, helpful for the court, obviously, to know about. But just thinking about the impact on public safety, you know, you really sort of begin to appreciate how uh, this kind of research can can inform uh, that as well. Thoughts about that, Katie? Yeah, that and that's really that's really what it is about is just informing our practices and our the decisions that we make um and so that we are making informed decisions and how we supervise each individual case but then also being able to share that information with our court and to justify the actions that we've taken in certain cases or decisions that we have made. We're going to take a short break. When we return, I'll ask Chief Elbert, Dr. DeLisi, and Assistant Deputy Chief Taja about how the empirical research work being conducted in the Southern District of Iowa led to the creation of the National Chiefs Research Group and about some of the research projects now underway in several other districts. You're listening to Off Paper. Excellence. What does it mean for a probation officer and a pretrial services officer? It's just a word, really but we put it on a pedestal. And when we do that, excellence seems out of reach. Something that only the privileged few, that only the golden boys and girls can achieve, while the rest of us just stand by watching. But that's not right. It can't be. For all it takes to be an excellent officer is to be a competent officer. And all it takes to be a competent officer is knowing how to make decisions confidently, knowing how to analyze facts, policies, laws, and situations critically, knowing how to get up every morning ready to just lead from where you are and make a difference. You don't need a fancy title. All it takes is knowing how to investigate matters objectively and how to plan proactively. All it takes is knowing how to bounce back from a really bad moment and be resilient, and knowing how to be aware of your role as an officer. All it takes to be a competent officer is to supervise individuals in ways that will help them succeed. All it takes is to be a team player and to manage your work. That's it. We are all capable of achieving excellence. All of us. Learn more about the Federal Probation and Pretrial System's Charter for Excellence and the FJC's competencies for experienced U.S. probation and pretrial services officers at fjc.dcn. Welcome back. I'm Mark Sherman, and I'm speaking with Chief U.S. Probation Officer Michael Elbert and Assistant Deputy Chief Katie Taja 
both of the Southern District of Iowa, and with Dr. Matt DeLisi of Iowa State University about the role of empirical research in probation and pretrial practice. So, Mike, uh, having just heard in some depth about how the Southern District of Iowa began working with Dr. DeLisi on district-based research projects, I'm wondering how the idea of district-based empirical research spread to other districts and the origins of the Chiefs Research Group. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. I think uh, right after the sex offender study was published, we began speaking about uh, putting this uh, Chiefs Research Group together uh, to really use the, the power of the districts and the, the data uh, to either replicate or not replicate our findings. So that was a big, a big part of it. The other part was federal data in correctional studies, uh, even today, is, is sparse. And uh, we uh, recently talked with Dr. Bonta and Dr. Ed Latessa, Dr. Jim Bonta and Dr. Ed Latessa, to do a uh, meta-analysis of federal studies and they looked at their databases and could not find enough studies uh, to do a meta-analysis. So it really showed that, you know, that we needed more data. We needed uh, districts to look at what we had done uh, to see if what we found was consistent, uh, was, was generalizable uh, to other districts. So we started talking to chiefs uh, about the idea of utilizing federal data uh, to inform their decisions, and there were a lot of excited folks and really, it became word of mouth in the beginning. And I looked at, at chiefs uh, who I had known, who I had served on work groups together with, uh, that were progressive in nature, that were risk takers. Uh, and then it became, uh, you know, chiefs who, who were just curious and wanted to join and, and wanted to hear what we had to say. And there was really no prohibition or preclusion for anybody to attend. So we, you know, we started looking at uh, locations. Of course, my old friend, Chief Doug Burris in St. Louis agreed to host the first uh, Chiefs Research Group meeting in 2015 in St. Louis. From there, uh, we went to Pensacola in 2016, and then to Denver in 2016, and Portland in 2017, and then 2018, most recently, we, we had a Chiefs Research Group meeting in Boston. Uh, we have three venues scheduled for 2019, 20, and 21, and that's New Jersey, Central California, and Southern New York. But basically, our, our goal was to collaborate and use the, the amazing uh, power of data to help inform our policies and procedures, to replicate, if possible, findings, and, and if not possible, to, to determine you know, what, uh, what differences there were in the data. Uh, we wanted to set system priorities. We looked at you know, what are we most concerned about in the federal system, and, and the two things that kept coming back to us was, one, the over-incarceration of federal offenders. And I think Katie's going to talk about that a little bit later on the low-risk sentencing study. But 80% of our offenders are low to low-moderate risk, yet 90, 93% go to prison. So we wanted to look at, at that. Also, the over-detention. Uh, you know, we, we detain 75% of our pretrial defendants. So we wanted to look at that. Um, working with chiefs and their outstanding staffs have been, has been so rewarding. Chiefs are... are you know, they, they, they have the knowledge. Uh, many of them had caseloads. Many of them actually supervised these populations. And as Dr. DeLisi will tell you, you need to know the data to understand the implications. So I can tell you that these chiefs and their staffs, they absolutely know the data. And a lot of what we do at times just kind of informs what we already knew. Uh, and sometimes we're surprised, but, but more than likely we, you know, were confirmed on what we believed uh, before. Uh, working with the FJC, with the Chiefs Research Group, with, with yourself, Mark, and the staff of the FJC has been incredible. 
Uh, the AOPPSO uh, with Matt Rowland and his staff has been very supportive. I can't say enough about my chief judge's support in putting this uh, chief's research group together. Uh, what I can tell you is we're, you know, we're excited about a lot of these, uh, these studies. Western New York just replicated our sex offender study, and uh, I guess we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that later. Uh, Rantry courts are being studied in the District of Oregon, Eastern Missouri. Other sex offender studies have been conducted in Western Washington, Eastern Missouri. Uh, New Jersey has done a location monitoring study. So we're we're really uh, we're really looking at a, a, at a myriad of different studies uh, in different districts, which was really what the CRG was put together to do. Right now we have 42 districts, and uh, we also have a Chiefs Research Group website uh, that's under construction right now. And I think Katie's going to talk a little bit more about that later. So, Mike, you mentioned the support of the court, and, and I think that that's worth drilling down on just a little bit here. And, I, you know, maybe it was karma or something, but um, late last week as I was preparing for this discussion, I found uh, in my on my desk a February um, issue of the Federal Sentencing Reporter. There's several wonderful articles uh, in that issue, and one of them was written by uh, U.S. District Judge uh, Stephanie Rose from your district. And I knew that we were going to be having this conversation. And so I took a look at uh, Judge Rose's article and she delved quite deeply and interestingly into uh, the role of empirical research and how helpful it's been to her. She had been uh, the U.S. attorney, I think, in the Northern District of Iowa uh, and is now a U.S. district judge in the Southern District of Iowa. And was talking about how much she has learned as a district judge and had been in her work has been informed by the work that Dr. Delisi and she mentions Dr. Delisi uh, in the article and the work that 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 he's done. And so um, it's really wonderful to sort of see that kind of support coming from your court. And and I imagine the same thing is happening in, in other districts. And I want to ask you, Katie, I want to bring you in uh, to the discussion here because you've sort of been present uh, since the creation of the Chiefs Research Group. And this is kind of a, a grassroots movement, um, which I also think is very interesting and not uncommon in the federal system. You've been actively coordinating the group's efforts and really have been helping move things forward since 2015. There have now been several meetings, uh, as Mike has described. Could you give us a, an overview of how the group has evolved over time? Mike made some reference to that, as well as to some reference, he made some reference to some of the projects being engaged in other districts. But could you could you drill down on some of that for us? Sure, Mark. Um, as Chief Albert had indicated, since 2015, several districts have had the opportunity through the CRG to present different evaluations of programs they have or studies that they are conducting in their district. And I think one of the great things about the evolution of this group is that even prior to any formalized meetings of the CRG, several districts out there had been doing unique programs in their districts and had been looking and working with uh, local researchers to evaluate their programs. And I think that the CRG really creates kind of the central group for people to then get together and share the work that they're doing instead of just having it it locally for their own use, but then to share the knowledge that they're learning with these other districts to either help improve their own programs that they have or to possibly create similar programs in their own district. And as um, Chief Albert had indicated, there's been several things over the last three years that have been presented on. So there's 
been a lot of work presented on specialty courts. And so, again, you have the reentry courts out of Oregon, the CARE program in Massachusetts. Eastern Missouri has presented on their evaluations of their mental health courts and their veterans courts. There's been uh, multiple studies on STAR and the effectiveness of that um, for the defendants and offenders and how officers are implementing that in the districts. Again, as Chief Albert had indicated, the sex offender study that we engaged in and really being able to have other districts replicate that. And that really is exciting because that was the whole goal of, of this group was to be able to build on research that's being conducted, understanding that each district has small populations. And if we can replicate those studies in other districts to build on the size of those studies is, is the really exciting part about that. And again, there's been work done on resiliency and there's just a whole host of um, work being done out there that when we get together as a group, we're able to hear about from the chiefs and then their researchers. We also are creating a CRG website, and the intent behind that is really then to create a centralized location where we can post these research that's being conducted on the district level so that people can get to it. Instead of just what often happens, I guess, is we go to these meetings, we hear about the studies, you may get the citation for a journal article, um, but then you leave there and it's difficult other than contacting the chief to, to get a copy of that. So the intent of that is that these districts can post this stuff all in one location so that we can all get to it and review it um, after the fact. Um, but again, we are working with general counsel at this time and it's currently under construction because we want to make sure that when it does go live and we do post it that uh, we are in compliance with copyright and all the other legal issues out there about posting this information. Sure. I mean, there there are a couple of things that you mentioned that I think are very uh, much worth highlighting for our audience. First is the idea of sharing information among the various chiefs uh, across the system. Mike mentioned that I think there are 42 districts that are currently participating in the CRG, the Chiefs Research Group. Um, at the most recent meeting that I attended in Boston, a number of those districts were represented. Um, and, and the sharing that went on just in terms of the presentations of the research projects that each of the districts is engaged in, really quite remarkable. Uh, and the questions back and forth among chiefs and among the researchers, really quite extraordinary, especially among, again, practitioners primarily. And the other thing that uh, that you sort of alluded to, which I think is important, especially for practitioners, most of whom do not have PhDs. You know, uh, I think in this sense, you know, your district is somewhat unique because you've got a chief and also uh, folks, other folks on your executive team who are PhDs and sort of understand things like research methodology and that and the sort of minutia that goes along with that. But important things to understand Stand in terms of sort of evaluating the quality of research. And, and what I observed in Boston most recently, for example, was sort of chiefs learning about methodology, which I think is uh, really valuable. Uh, you, don't, you don't have to become an expert in it, but you sort of, you, you kind of need to know enough to be dangerous kind of thing. So uh, really valuable. So Dr. DeLisi, in the years since you first began uh, working with Iowa Southern, you've conducted a number of research projects. We've, we've uh, heard about some of them already. In addition to to the research work on sex offenders, you've also conducted research onset of adult offending, psychopathy, evidence-based sentencing. So I'm wondering if you could describe in a little bit more depth one of those studies, perhaps either the psychopathy study or the 
project focusing on onset of adult offending. And I'm, I'm mentioning those because I think those are particularly interesting. You know, what you found that's influenced your thinking as a researcher who's interested in translating research to practice? Well, the, the low-risk offenders, one of the interesting things is that our first focus was on sex offenders. And I do want to touch on that study because I think it has very important implications. And that is a five-year census of sex offenders in the Southern District of Iowa found that 69% of them reported a contact victim uh, during their polygraph examination. And so these would be offenders, many of whom would have no official criminal history. And so on paper, they would appear to be low risk. What we showed is that, in fact, a large proportion of them are, are high risk. And in fact, 34 of the offenders in our data had no official record, but they had victimized 148 victims. And so when, when that was presented at CRG, uh, you could tell when I would talk about some of these issues that some uh, in the audience viewed all sex offenders as high risk and would supervise them as such, which I think is the appropriate uh, stance to take. But others would really rely on that paper assessment in terms of them having no criminal history. So there was a, I don't want to word, the word controversy would be too much, but there were some who were maybe a little bit resistant to the notion that uh, someone with no criminal history should be supervised in a way other than low risk. Uh, and so that was a very important one where I think focusing on this population, supervising them in the most stringent way possible is going to be the best approach in terms of trying to preclude future sexual victimizations and, and enhance public safety. We also focused on uh, violent offenders and offenders who tended to have the most extensive criminal histories, who tended to be the most violent, uh, who tended to perform more on supervision. But by focusing on those really severe groups in the first few projects, one of the uh, kind of unexpected findings was that uh, a sizable number of offenders in our district uh, are extremely low risk. And so the uh, the sort of advanced adult onset group that you were mentioning, Mark, we found that there was this small group of about 2.7% of clients. So there's 23 of these clients in the Southern District of Iowa who didn't have any antisocial behavior until the age of 60 or older, which is extraordinarily late in life. Uh, usually the onset of antisocial behavior is during uh, adolescence, and then it tends to sort of peak in late adolescence, early adulthood, and then dissipate afterward. To to not have any antisocial behavior at all during life is relatively rare. And then to not have any antisocial behavior, but then to have an emergence of it at age 60 or older, and then go to federal prison is extremely rare. And so um, we called this group the Novo Advanced Adult Onset Offenders. It was a study published in the Journal of Forensic Sciences. And these clients tended to be higher socioeconomic status. Uh, they had kind of mixed evidence of, of adverse childhood experiences, such as various forms of abuse or neglect. They tended to be abstainers from any kind of drug use. And most of their criminal activity that they engaged in uh, was relating to Social Security fraud and, and various other types of white-collar uh, crimes. And so that was very interesting to us, that there is this group within the population uh, that would be so low risk that seemingly they should be treated in a different way. And that was uh, that finding was one of the issues that we started to think about in terms of should we have alternatives to incarceration or different kinds of sentencing consideration for offenders who just appear to, behaviorally speaking, be too low risk to send uh, to the Bureau of Prisons. 
Chief U.S. Probation Officer Michael Elbert, Assistant Deputy Chief Katie Taja, and Professor of Sociology Matt DeLisi of Iowa State University are my guests. When we come back, we'll talk about the meaning of district-based empirical research for line officers in the Southern District of Iowa and across the federal probation and pretrial services system. This is Off Paper. In 2017, FJC Probation and Pretrial Services Education introduced 10 competencies for experienced U.S. probation and pretrial services officers. Each competency contains a definition, a set of accompanying behaviors, and an outcome that describes what the competency looks like in action. To assist officers in furthering their professional development, the FJC recently created the Experienced Officer Competencies Toolkit. The toolkit includes links to the Charter for Excellence, the competencies for experienced U.S. probation and pretrial services officers, a self-assessment, a professional development plan, and FJC programs and resources for experienced probation and pretrial services officers. The self-assessment and professional development plan are fillable PDFs meaning you can download, complete, and save the form on your computer or device. The toolkit also includes brief videos designed to help officers deepen their appreciation of the connection between excellence, as envisioned by the Charter, and the competencies. The videos can be streamed or downloaded for use at training events, meetings, district retreats, and the like. The Experienced Officer Competencies Toolkit can be found by clicking on the Education Menu tab on the FJC.DCN homepage and then clicking on Probation and Pretrial Services Education. Welcome back. I'm Mark Sherman, and this is Off Paper. Katie Taja, I want to ask you about the impact of district-based empirical research on pre-sentence investigation and potentially the impact it might have on sentencing itself. Um, I think one of the things probation departments have been struggling with is that much of the focus of research and practice improvements has been on the supervision function or on issues of pretrial release and detention, and much less so on pre-sentence. Um, Obviously, post-conviction supervision and pretrial are both hugely important, um, but if you ask district judges what the most difficult part of their job is, consistently they respond that it's sentencing. Uh, in the years since United States v. Booker, a 2005 Supreme Court case a decision that rendered the U.S. sentencing guidelines advisory instead of mandatory, district judges have really had enormous discretion uh, in how they approach sentencing. The pre-sentence officer uh, conducts investigations and writes reports that often contain sentencing uh, recommendations. And so my question is, you know, from the research that the Southern District of Iowa is conducting with Dr. DeLisi, what are you uh, learning that is informing pre-sentence practice in the district? Sure. I think that this is really a topic that is very, very important. And as you had indicated, Mark, I think often gets overlooked when uh, we're studying offenders and research and how we're supervising them. But you're correct that a big portion of what judges do in the federal system is sentencing. Um, and it's a difficult part of their job to make those types of decisions. And Mike um, had mentioned earlier that nationally 80% of defendants are low risk and only about seven of those receive a sentence of probation. Locally, uh, Dr. DeWeezy in 2016, when he was looking at 865 of our post-conviction 
clients here in southern Iowa found that 78% of those individuals were low or low-moderate risk based on the PICRA. And it was while we were looking for at that study to look at some of the most violent offenders and trying to figure out um, practices and policies related to those individuals, we stumbled across the fact that um, our dist- our numbers locally um, mirror what nationally and here as well, we have a very low percentage of probation sentences or non-custodial sentences being imposed. Um, so I think, you know, those findings really then shaped how can we expand our research and our policies to provide the court what they need, but to make more informed decisions at the sentencing level and when we're doing our pre-sentence investigation. So based on that, um, we've it's, it's become something that's very important to us, and we are now starting to place a greater emphasis on producing pre-sentence reports and sentence recommendations that are based on empirical research from our own clients. Um, and we will be- begin using, and we're working on a project for the summer and into the fall, where we are going to begin utilizing actuarial risk assessment tools as well as a four-question risk assessment that was created by Dr. DeLisi when he was looking at our population here in southern Iowa to really determine what the risk level is of our individuals to provide that information to the court as well as their risk factors and strength areas so that we can really begin to target our special conditions of supervision that we recommend to fit those risk areas and those strength areas, but then also to provide to the court evidence that some of these individuals are very unlikely to recidivate and do very well on supervision based on our the experience of our supervision officers and really a custodial sentence is not necessary in some of these cases. Um, so we're looking really to to utilize that information and provide that to the court. Thank you. Uh, Mike, I want to get your take on that as well. That is a fascinating project uh, because it really sort of uh, gets the system further into this area of what has been referred to as evidence-based sentencing. I I, I tend to refer to it as science-informed sentencing or or even responsive sentencing um, because it's looking at at risk and need, but also uh, keeping in mind the, the purposes of sentencing, the policy goals of sentencing. So Mike, interested in getting your take on that, but also your thoughts on the impact research is having in your district uh, regarding post-conviction supervision uh, practice and pretrial services practice. Thoughts about that? Absolutely. Well, i got to give all the credit to Katie. She's worked on this this low-risk sentencing project uh, going on years now, and it just goes to show how difficult it is uh, to really penetrate uh, the sentencing paradigm. We just felt that, um, you know, we were morally obligated based on the low-risk nature of most of our cases, but also the fact that Dr. DeLisi found four variables that uh, could decidedly determine uh, whether someone would recidivate. And we just felt like, you know, we want to provide that information to the court and then leave it up to the court, obviously, uh, to how they utilize that information. Our court has been wonderful, very receptive. We've gone all the way from an ATI-type paradigm to now rejecting that paradigm, and uh, you know, looking at spreading that throughout our throughout our docket, so all the judges have access to that information, and then they'll they'll do uh, what they will with that information. We uh, have worked with the Sentencing Commission. 
uh, Brent Newton has been instrumental in helping us uh, to determine, you know, where we would place uh, that information in the pre-sentence report. So we're getting closer, and it's because of Katie's efforts, and it's really exciting that, that this major paradigm shift is going to occur through the pre-sentence unit. As you mentioned, it, it seems often that pre-sentence officers feel kind of left out of the EBP discussion, but this has put them on, on front street. So very exciting. If, if I could mention the paradigm shift with sex offenders, Dr. Delizzi has been instrumental uh, in that, and I would say that uh, we just consider him part of the staff now, and I would say that going forward, uh, the gold standard really is to have an in-district researcher on your staff, uh, and he's just been he's just been wonderful to work with. Um, what I can say is the paradigm shift in sex offenders uh, has, you know, when we first uh, had the findings reported, we met with our judges, and recently I was meeting with one of our newer judges who was at a judge's training, and there was a... a, a um, uh, more experienced judge presenting on sex offenders and talking about how low-risk child pornographers were, my judge raised her hand and said, wait a second, have you heard of Southern Iowa study? And she mentioned that 7 out of 10, you know, it had hands-on victims, and, and the judge who was presenting was, you know, was appreciative of the information but had not heard of that. So I really believe we've, you know, we've created a paradigm shift. It's very important in our district. You know, as the chief, I, I set macro goals, and one macro goal is, is to protect kids. We don't want further victims. Uh, Dr. Delizzi has found in his studies that once victimized, the victimizer, uh, uh, the victim becomes the victimizer. So we want to make sure we stop that cycle, but we want to protect kids. The other part is with the studies we've conducted, we want to protect our staff. So officer safety is our number one priority in Southern Iowa. So we really started to look at right after sex offenders, violent offenders, um, you know, psychopaths, uh, the most the most dangerous, the caseload within a caseload. So we could determine, you know, how often we would see these folks, more intensive type of supervision to protect the community. Um, you know, we stumbled upon the low risk when we were looking at the violence study. So, again, we started to, to look at, okay, how can we more bring more justice to our system? Uh, so it's been very exciting. But just on the horizon, you mentioned pretrial. We really want to look at, a longitudinal study of the impact of pretrial detention. And Dr. Delizzi, I think that's one of his next projects that we'll be looking at. We want to look at pretrial all the way through our system, from arrest uh, to detention or release to the BOP uh, to post-conviction supervision and then after supervision. So we want to look at that impact, and I think that will be very important for our system. And then finally, uh, we have contracted with the University of Cincinnati to bring evidence-based practices to our uh, substance abuse treatment vendors. We spend millions of dollars uh, as a system, hundreds of millions of dollars as, as a system on treatment, uh, contract treatment, and we want to make sure that our vendors uh, are, you know, conducting treatment in an evidence-based way. So the next thing we want to look at is, are there things we can determine through empirical research that, that really gives us clues to, uh, to good treatment agencies and outcomes? So looking at, you know, by, by agency, uh, drug positive rate, Noncompliance with uh, treatment rates. Uh, what are the uh, educational qualifications of their staff? Does that make a difference? The longevity of their staff, the different uh, treatment modalities, uh, the cognitive-based treatment that they provide. 
So really exciting stuff on the on the horizon, but that in a nutshell is kind of what we've been looking at. You know, Mike, uh, I want to unpack this a little bit because there are several things that you touched on that I think are so important. For example, with regard to the sex offenders work, uh, research work that you all have been doing and how that's been informing your approach to supervision. I, one of the things that points out to me is just or a reminder of how complex this work uh, is in probation and pretrial. We're dealing with human beings. We, we, we have multiple instruments and tools uh, that are research-based to help us uh, and to help officers certainly um, understand how to approach supervision on both a sort of a group level but also on an individual level. But one of the things that your research on sex offenders has really pointed out, and you gave this example uh, of the the judge's conversation about low risk versus not so low risk uh, based on the research work you you all have been doing, that, you know, we, we need to be, we need to understand the complexity of the work and of the people who are being supervised and that Empirical research done at the district level can really help um, identify the nuances of a population and and therefore help a district sort of fine-tune its approach to supervision. Absolutely. I think another finding, another takeaway, you know, that we already pretty much knew um, from Dr. Delizzi's violence study that really impressed our judges. We've talked to them about our, our psychopathy study, which you know, these career offenders and how dangerous they are and, and really the destruction uh, that they have, uh, they've created in their lives um, and how, how you know, it, luckily it's a small population, but we, sh- we should supervise them very carefully. But they were really, I think, surprised and, and uh, you know, really taken aback by, the, by how dangerous our bank robber population and felon in possession population really is and how criminogenic they are. And I guess I can defer to Dr. Delizzi, but that was something I think they they kind of they kind of knew that, but it really confirmed for them these are folks that we should pay attention to. Yeah, Dr. Delizzi, just want to get some final thoughts from you from the research perspective. You've had the, a background as a practitioner. We talked a little bit about that earlier, and you've been a sociologist focusing on criminal justice for a long time. So, really interested to get some final thoughts from you about the practical implications for line officers from the type of research you're engaged in with the Southern District of Iowa. Sure, I'll give you two examples. One uh, measure that was in the data uh, that, that no one really had done anything with was uh, homicidal ideation. And so when you have a, a case of, you know, fortunately of a mass murder that occurs in the United States, it's often true that the offender will have had pervasive evidence of homicidal ideation uh, throughout their adulthood or adolescence and, and many, many red flags uh, that were suggested that this person was going to perpetrate a homicidal acts. So, in the Southern District of Iowa, about 12% of clients have either uh, somewhat or definite evidence of homicidal ideation. And the ones who have definite evidence of it where they uh, sort of routinely make these homicidal statements or they have actual lists of individuals who they would like to kill, their criminal careers tended to be far more severe than other kinds of clients, and their their psychopathology and their their sort of diagnostic history was also much more severe. And so, um, in terms of the implication of that for practice and for line officers, if you have a client who is constantly talking about either trying, you know, thinking about killing their their 
partner or thinking about killing officers, thinking about killing anyone, those aren't just mere disturbing, throwaway kind of comments, but they're clinically very useful. And it's, it's probable that that individual uh, is much more violent and has a much more extensive criminal history. The second example with the psychopathy work is in doing assessments on offenders, uh, as, as Mike sort of mentioned, some of them have just extraordinarily lengthy and violent criminal histories with just dozens and dozens uh, of arrests and convictions and confinements. And during these interviews, some of the clients have, have admitted to involvement in, in multiple homicides, both in the community and in, in correctional settings, specifically in prison. And so, again, in terms of officer safety, it's, I think, imperative for officers to know you know, for instance, as a client who I'm supervising, what is their their sort of psychiatric profile? What is what do, are they psychopathic? If so, how how clinically psychopathic are they? Uh, because it can be helpful with sort of supervising them. I'll give you one quick anecdote. During one of the interviews with a, a client who is uh, clinically psychopathic, he was talking about a double drive-by shooting that he had perpetrated when he was uh, an adolescent. And when he recounted this story, he had a certain amount of pride, uh, kind of a gleam in his eye. You could tell he thought this was really quite terrific. And so after he told this story, I made a kind of judgmental, kind of condemnatory comment to him about that's really not something to be proud of. And as I did it, I really intensified my eye contact to really kind of show him this sense of scorn I had. And he immediately reacted in a, in a similar way. He sort of intensified his eye contact and kind of became more alert. And then after a couple of seconds, he sort of caught himself. And after the interview, the officer and I who were talking about this case, and I said, did you see that? And he said, oh, absolutely, I saw that. And one of the ideas that the officer had, which I thought was a brilliant one, is if this person were in violation, uh, he would, it would probably be counterproductive to send him to a halfway house where he would have exposure to current gang-involved young adults who would likely see him as older and maybe not, uh, a true gang member, and he might see them as as not legitimate gang members because he had, it was from California and, and maybe thinks that that's more authentic. And so it would be counterproductive and probably problematic to have him be exposed to offenders in that setting. And so instead, uh, the officer suggested that having the, the client do a weekend in jail and an adult jail would be a better sort of response to him. And so just having those kind of clinical insights uh, can be helpful for them to, to determine what's the best course of action that's going to make help the client be most successful, but also in terms of understanding if things are not going well on supervision, what the potential threats are that that offender poses towards staff. Mike Elbert, Matt DeLisi, Katie Taja, I want to thank all of you uh, so much for talking with me. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Mark. Thanks, Mark. Appreciate it. Dr. Michael Elbert is Chief U.S. Probation Officer for the Southern District of Iowa. Catherine Taja is Assistant Deputy Chief U.S. Probation Officer in Iowa Southern overseeing the pre-sentence unit. Dr. Matt DeLisi is Professor of Sociology and Coordinator of Criminal Justice Studies at Iowa State University. He conducts district-based empirical research in collaboration with the U.S. Probation and Pretrial Services Office in the Southern District of Iowa. Off Paper is produced by Paul Van Bess. The program is directed by Maisha Pope. I'm Mark Sherman. Thanks for listening. See you next time.